Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about Andor, episode eight, entitled Narkina 5. And this aired on October 26th, and it was directed once again by Toby Haynes, but now written by Bo Willimon. And this was, well, I watched this <laughs> late at night and my brain was mush. <laughs> scrambled, scrambled brain. Like, what just happened? What did I just watch? I'm pretty sure this was the longest Star Wars television episode we've seen. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was chock full, loaded with so much stuff. This show continues to blow me away with how many moving pieces there are and also how intense it is. Yeah. <laughs> this episode was more intense not more intense. I wouldn't say it's more intense. The heist episode was so intense, but it was like on par with the heist episode for me, at least on first watch. This one was a very different kind of intensity. I felt, I don't know. I just felt like we, it was moving at a breakneck speed and I was like, all right, let's go. <laughs> I had forgotten that Toby Haynes had directed episodes of Sherlock with like Benedict Cumberbatch and he directed, which, which episode was it? Like the final problem. Uh, mm-hmm. And this felt very much like once I remembered that I was like, oh, this pacing actually does feel similar to like those episodes of Sherlock because that was when Sherlock mm-hmm. like fakes his death and everything. Um, and it's been a while since I've watched Sherlock, but I remember those episodes had those kind of moving, like big moving pieces and kind of going back and forth between these different narratives and set pieces and things like that. And I don't know, it was just, just something I was thinking about when I was watching this episode. It, it remind like I made the connection. I was like, Oh yeah, that this does feel like there's similarities between these two episodes in a way, but this episode was so fascinating and uh, in a, in a lot of ways like hard to watch what was happening uh, throughout the galaxy and like with Cassian of course and like comparing it to you know what Luthen and Mon Mothma and what's happening back on Ferrex. I think like that's also kind of the tension that we're describing is that it was a very kind of heavy episode or you can feel it really setting up heavy things. Definitely. It was pretty terrifying to me, to be honest. Like Mm -hmm. things that were happening were scary. Yeah. And it was probably one of the scariest things I've seen in Star Wars in a long time. We're going to get into it. But before we do, I wanted to say that we actually have a roundtable interview that we did with the composer, Nicholas Bertel. We are so excited about this. It is such a cool opportunity. So thank you so much, Lucasfilm, for that. And that will be after our discussion. I will put the timestamps of that interview in the show notes, in case you're just here for that interview with Nicholas Bertel, we won't take any offense. You can just go straight there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're really excited about that and can't wait for you all to hear that. So let's just get into talking about Narkina 5. Let's start right with the Empire story. Okay, so we finally got Cyril and Dedra meeting. Caitlin, what are your thoughts? This, we've been waiting. We've been waiting for this. <laughs> we've been waiting so long. Eight yeah. whole episodes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I kind of expected their meeting. Um, it was probably last week or the week before that I speculated about like Cyril having information that Dedra needed. They've become partners. And I still think we're headed in that way. But I think I expected them to join forces kind of sooner when it's clear that Dedra was very much like, all right, you haven't really given me that much information that I needed. So, you know, stop, uh, 
stop putting in reports and basically like sit down and be quiet, uh, which I like this episode with Dedra a lot because she's gotten that stamp of approval last week and gotten to take over the Mor- Morlana one and Ferrix. And you, I feel like you can definitely see her energy has changed. She's has a different way of walking now, um, even though she's always been very confident and sure of herself. I think it's just turned up a couple more notches in this episode now that she has a little bit more authority under her belt. And even in that that conference room, our, our favorite <laughs> boardroom in the ISB that they always find themselves in. And she's asking uh, for money basically to to drill down deep on Ferrix and find uh, Luthen and Cassian and all of that. And everyone's kind of doubting her, but her supervisor is the one who backs her up saying, no, you know, she's, she's actually convinced me. So I think she definitely walks with a, a different air of confidence now in this episode than we've seen her in the rest of the series. But this interaction was so good. I think seeing that the fact that Cyril is continuing to push for now that he really cares about the people who died, I think he tells himself he cares about those two company people that died on Marlona one. But ultimately, and he says this in the episode, it's about clearing his name. And that's really what he wants. And he wants to be recognized. And, you know, he's telling Dedra that he was a good employee, that he did his job. Um, Yes, he was a little overzealous, but he was doing it all for order and things like that. And I think that's, I do think they're going to become partners still later on. But I thought their interactions were great. Definitely feeling the sexual tension. Not going to lie. Yes. Yes. I was going to say the the situation of her, like, yeah, there was sexual tension. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, I don't know if that's like, I think it's implicit in the screen, but I don't know if I just like want that because of how they were as as interviewees and things like that. I, but I do, I think it's there. No, I, I, I totally think it's there. I think <laughs> I think anything is possible. <laughs> and I was so like, true. it's not enemies to lovers. It's just enemies, enemies. <laughs> yeah, bad it's guys, just bad messy. Guys. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's I think that's what's interesting about it is like she's like dominating the whole thing. Yeah. So that's the dynamic, I think. But what is their end game? Because I think her storyline suddenly became like really interesting and how she is rising to basically power to be honest mm-hmm. her mentioning axis she has identified someone in like the chain of communication and basically luthan is referred to as access i thought using the term access was pretty interesting because honestly it reminded me of the name fulcrum mm-hmm. that we've seen thrown around in rebels in early visual dictionaries Cassian was a quote-unquote fulcrum agent, so I wonder if that's going to come up, but it's interesting to me that throughout this entire episode, we see that Dedra has clued in to the fact that there is a network, even to the point of discovering Bix and cutting off that that situation that is happening on Ferrix, that communication that is coming from PAC, and I was really sad about that. Oh my gosh, when his son was... uh you know, calling out for him in the streets of Ferrix. That was so sad. It definitely reminded me so of sad. our flashback last week with Clem and Cassian. And it, we're, we're going to talk about Ferrix probably right after this because I feel like our conversation is kind of naturally taking us there. But I think, you know, I'm really excited to see where Dedra's story is going. Like you said, if she's getting more power, if she continues to get more power as we move throughout the series, or if Access, losing Cassian, 
uh, end up victorious in the end. And she's got egg on her face on Ferrix, just like uh, Cyril did too. That would be uh, interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've talked about uh, kind of rooting for Dedra, this underdog in the in the Empire. Of course, we've talked about, um, you know, her being a woman, the only woman usually in these scenes with the Empire and, you know, a woman in the workplace, that kind of thing. Uh, but then this episode, to really see her take that authority to the next level, it's like I don't find myself rooting for her as much. <laughs> Especially, yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's especially scary. after what happens on Ferrix at the end, uh, when she's tell when they're about to take Pac out of the room, and she goes, she tells them to leave him there, and then once Bix enters the room, she's like, "Wait, what are you doing? Like, get him out of here!" Like, she can't see this, you know. And it's all clearly, uh, you know, put on for show, obviously. And it's just, it, it's really chilling, and uh, yeah, it makes me. We're starting to see just how far Dedra will go to to get to her ultimate end game of formally connecting these dots with Axis and the Rebellion. What I think is interesting about Axis is that they, uh, Dedra points out that he made a mistake on Ferrix. And this is kind of what we see Luthen lamenting over later on in the episode. So uh, again, I, I think a, a conversation between Dedra and Luthen, that's one of those really interesting pair-ups I would love to see by the time we get to yeah. the end of the season. Yeah, that I think we're going to talk about Luthen later, but I think he's becoming more and more of an interesting character that I think is so, super layered. So I'd love to see that drill down by Tedra at this point. Yeah, I agree with you, though. I think that she's her power in this episode was alarming. I feel like a lot of the theme of this episode was really seeing how cruel the Empire can be. And even Mon Mothma is debating, you know, this uh, what's the poured p-o-r-d that bill or law that is put into place i think that they're all debating all of the power that suddenly the empire is coming into in the aftermath of aldani i really like how the show is exploring how one event can completely change the course of the empire's goals and how they can use their might to their advantage in the wake of this disaster where people are inspired by it, but at the same time, people are losing their rights because of it as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's what Luthen says in his conversation with Sagrera later of oppress right oppression breeds rebellion. And mm -hmm. that's part of what he talks to Mon Mothma about in one of the previous episodes where she's kind of shocked that he was behind Aldani. And she tells him, you know, people are going to suffer. And Luthen basically says they have to uh, in order for us to move forward. It's... It's a it's a hard truth to kind of reckon with when it comes to the Empire and the Rebellion. Yeah, I felt like this episode for me was very um, in your face probably isn't the word because I feel like that has a non negative connotation, but like very upfront about uh, political one-to-one -one comparisons to our real world. And mm -hmm. there's so many, so I'm sure we'll get to it. But this episode for me felt very obvious in that and I really appreciated it. I thought it was done super well. I think that this is the Star Wars show that I we've all been waiting for in that regard because Star Wars is a rebellion story, but how far does that actually go? And I feel like Andor is pushing the pushing that not the limits, but pushing that thesis forward, I guess, then I really, really appreciate it. It's awesome. Well, I feel like Andor is special in that it's taking us to 
not the beginning of the rebellion, because I think we've seen throughout a lot of different Star Wars projects that, right, everyone has their own rebellion. Think people fight back in a myriad of ways across the galaxy, uh, whether or not they're part of the former rebellion. But kind of our, our big stories, like thinking about like the prequel trilogy, that's the the fall of the Republic. The original trilogy is overturning the Empire finally. It's the end of that story for the Empire. And so is, to a certain extent, the sequel trilogy when it comes to the First Order. Whereas here, it's really focusing on like what Luthen is trying to do, which is bring like make the Empire worse for the galaxy in order for that oppression to inspire rebellion. And we don't often like we haven't really gotten that story in full force i think even like in a show like rebels the ghost crew they're kind of in hiding a lot or they're doing these like one-off missions and things like that but uh, i think that andor is really showing in a much more visceral way that all the ways that the empire is you know actively putting people in prison uh you know incarcerating people for petty crimes uh like all of that they're taking everything up to the extreme and i think we're basically watching that in real time in the show and i think that's what makes it uh so much more alarming especially as you said we can compare it to you know so many real world events that are going on Speaking of rebellion, let's talk about Ferrix. So seeing Marva in this mm. episode. Mm-mm. Okay, first off, before I go into the Marva thing, because it's really, it makes me very sad. Was there a time jump? I couldn't figure this out there, because I, it felt like someone mentioned that it's been five months. There is a little bit. I In the beginning of the episode when Dedra, I don't know if it's how much of a time jump, but Dedra says that the star path unit, <laughs> our star path <laughs> unit was stolen a year ago and then it just showed up a month ago. Maybe I was confused. Which is yeah. when Cassian. So I think it's been a month of from when Cassian met Luthen. Uh, and I feel like time has passed within Cassian's storyline with how long he's been in the prison, but I'm not sure how long he's been there by the time we get to the end of the episode. Right. I don't either. I, I, I think I disagree with you about the time passing in the prison. I think it's only been like two days that we see in this oh. episode. But I was a little confused about that mention because it seemed like Marva had some changes happen pretty rapidly yeah. to her after Cassian left. And if like that's what I assumed. But then there was I swear I heard someone say five months. Anyway, I'm a little confused by it, but I don't I think that might be a slight negative to the episode in my opinion is like thinking about that when I wasn't really sure that I was supposed to be thinking about it anyway Mm -hmm. um okay Marva on Ferrix so sad about this the fact that we see Marva looking worse for wear but then also feeling so inspired I don't know I just but I don't she was literally poking around in the for at the hotel where we know the empire is stationed for a Mm -hmm. tunnel for the rebellion to use I know. I'm ready. I'm ready for the rebellion to use it. I'm ready for the people to rise up and save Bix probably from where she is right now. But I I feel like I was so sad to see her looking so weak is probably not the right word, but somewhere in that realm. I was really sad to see that. And then I was just like, I can't handle if the last time and I know we talked about this last time, but if the last time Cassian and Marva spoke would have been the last episode, like I'm going to be no. really sad. No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> no, I think she it, it to me it felt like she wasn't in her right mind or that she had become so 
obsessed with the rebellion to the point where she's, yeah. you know, poking around at the front door of the empire at the hotel. You know, she's not, it felt like she wasn't thinking clearly to me. And mm-hmm. they talk about how she had to be carried home and they're worried to the point where they're, you know, looking for, for Cassian. And also I got to say, I'm really glad that Brasos is back. I, his, I could fall into his sad eyes, you know. Just, <laughs> he's so great. He's just like a big teddy bear. He, I don't know. <laughs> he really is. Uh, he just he carries so much. Yeah, just I feel that weary emotion in him whenever he's on screen. I think he's so great uh, of an actor. And anyway, he you know was pretty present in the first couple episodes. We had that, you know, at the end of episode three, that like last 15 minutes where we all cried and they do all the long yeah. shots of all the characters and he's in the bar just having a drink but like looking off. I just, you know, I I felt it. <laughs> and I, I'm glad to see him back and like doing something in this episode. And he just seems to have such a pure heart and I know we don't know that much about him, but, you know, in our in our ever ongoing conversation about characters we trust and characters we don't, I trust Brasos with my life. So do I. And, so do I. You know, at the end of the episode or, or our time on Ferrix, really, when they are calling out for Bix to arrest her and he kind of stands in front of her and tells her to run and is still kind of trying to protect her the best way he can in that moment. I don't know. I just, I was really glad to see him uh, and that him and uh, Bix are working together. The fact that they both genuinely don't know where Cassian is. It just, it worries me. Yeah. Like you said about Cassian and Marva, if they're going to be together again, all of that. We know that Marva told Cassian at the end of last episode, you know, he says, I'll be back. And she says, of course he will. Just when, when will that happen? Um, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Um. <laughs> Time's a ticking. It just makes me sad. <laughs> I, I don't know. know. The one thing I wanted to bring up with Bix, obviously we know that she is in uh, uh, imprisoned with Dedra right now and what's going to happen with them. Is she going to spill the beans about Luthen, about where Cassian went? I don't think she knows where Cassian went uh, originally with Aldani. So I but think- she knows Luthen. She does. She knows Luther. She does know Luther. Yeah. I couldn't remember. Does she know his name? Yeah, it's a good question. I was thinking about that too. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think it's said, but I could be completely wrong about that. Yeah, I can't remember. But the one thing I thought was interesting to note was, you know, in the last episode when Cassian comes back to Ferrix, Bix tells him that everyone on Ferrix blames him for the Empire now having control on uh, on Ferrix. And then, you know, what happened with Pack, that's Bix's fault because she went to his shop to send out a communication to Luthen. And I think that's why he got arrested because they were monitoring it and saw the communication come from his shop. So I think there's now this, like, she's now at fault too for something that happened within the community. And it's not one-to-one because obviously the entire empire is now on Ferrix, but this, I don't know, just thinking about how people are putting each other at risk, the risks they're willing to take, the the community mindset that's going on. Pac in the in that episode says that they need to get together as a, you know, as a community and do something. We hear the um the alarm system going off in this episode too. The yeah, the clanging yeah. again. So there's just there's a lot going on on Ferrex right now. And 
I do think that like what happens with Bix and Pac will be another catalyst for the rebellion that hopefully is coming. And I don't know, maybe Marva does have a plan. It really feels like I was thinking about this as you were talking about how it really feels like that pe- the people in Ferrix have a common mindset about the imperial occupation there. Mm-hmm. And they have a real community aspect, especially we saw that initially in those first three episodes with the alarm system that you were referring to and just the way that people look out for each other and know each other. And I think that if I think about Luthen's goals at the end of this episode when he's talking to Saw and how he is so desperate for people to just join together and create a community and to create and continue that like path of connections in order to form a formal rebellion, I I sort of think that Ferrix exists in the story as a model almost mm-hmm. to show how this uprising could happen and exist like thematically, right? Because I really do think that the community is on the same page. It doesn't really feel like anyone is objecting uh, or is objecting to people being against the empire being there, right? Like you don't really see that. You see people being horrified by the concept, but you don't see the sort of both sidesism that like in other Star Wars projects we've seen and like even in Andor we've seen. So I don't think that I think that Ferrix in a lot of ways is like this thematic model for like a, a planet uprising, a planet rebellion that like I think that Luthen, without even knowing it, wishes that that could be the rebellion. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it like that. But yeah, I, I assume that it feels like everyone will end up back on Ferrix, even yeah, Luthen and it's, Cassian. It's definitely like home base. Yeah, yeah. I was really happy to see Vel and Cinta in this episode. The fact that there's an admittance that they love each other is huge for Star Wars representation on screen. I really love these two characters too. Like genuinely, I think they're great. And I think Cinta is a killer and I love that about her. And Belle, I'm finding her story more and more intriguing. And I said last episode <laughs> that I was going to put the Vel being Luthen's daughter or granddaughter or something to rest, but I am um, <laughs> digging up the grave. Back. And theory's back on, guys. Theory's back on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're doing this again. Because Cinta mentioning that Vel's from a rich family just trying to like do right. Um, hello. <laughs> like, it could happen. We don't know that much about Vel and her story. So. Yeah, it's back. Also, I think there was an interesting parallel of Vel on the transport off of Ferrix that was reminded me a lot of when Luthen actually arrived on Ferrix in the first three episodes on the same bus situation, looking out the window. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it okay. could, go, just, could go either way. <laughs> it could go, it really could. It just, um, I, I had put it to rest last time and I'm, it's now a zombie. It's back. So <laughs> it is almost Halloween. So yes, this is exactly. It's, this is spooky, spooky theory. Yeah. Spooky theory. <laughs> I yeah. I was so glad. I know last week we were a little concerned with how Cinta was getting off of Aldani. So to see them both on Ferrix, I thought was so great. And yeah, this kind of difficult, another difficult conversation that Cinta and Vel are having, and. Vel, I think it's becoming more clear over these past few episodes that while she is wants to do her part, she also maybe doesn't want to give everything for the cause. I, you know, her conversation with Cinta, you know, haven't we given enough? Don't we 
deserve to rest and just be together. And Cynthia tells her no. She says, we take we take what's left, basically. Like, we give our all for the cause and we take what's left. Uh, something to that effect. And uh, they're kind of on different sides, I think, on that front. I think Val agrees with Cinta ultimately, but I think it's harder for her. And I think maybe part of her wishes that it was harder for Cinta too, but that's also as Cinta pointed out why she loves Cinta. Uh, She says she's a mirror and shows her what she needs to see, which I thought was such a great um, way to describe their relationship because that's definitely how we've seen it so far. Like back on Aldani when they were on top of the dam and Cinta it wasn't even a pep talk. I You couldn't even describe that as a pep talk, I think, in Aldani. It was like, this is what we're doing and you need to do it. Yeah. And Cinta put her in her place and she left. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it does make me wonder, and I don't know if we talked about this in the Aldani episodes, but why Cinta was not the leader of the group. And maybe this does go back to Val somehow being related to Luthen and that's why she was made the leader. Uh, and, right. and I guess we don't even know if Val and Cinta met before Aldani. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I think their relationship is really interesting. And the point Cinta made to point out that Val was just a rich girl running from her family did seem a little cold hearted. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what it's what Val needed to hear. And mm-hmm. yeah, I assume she's going back to Coruscant. We know that they haven't had contact with Clea and Luthen. So uh, perhaps that's where she's going to send back a report. And yeah, I don't know how Cinta was planning on, Cinta and Val were planning on contacting Luthen from Ferex, but it definitely seems like that will be harder to do now that Dedra is there and uh, has basically got a blank check to do whatever she needs for surveillance on Ferex. Right. A huge concept in this episode was surveillance. It was mm-hmm. definitely feeling a lot like the Imperial Patriot Act, even through the conversations that Mon was having later in her beautiful, lavish apartment about surveillance and the Empire um, looking at everything and increasing prison sentences and things like that. So speaking of prison, let's talk about Narkina 5. Cassian Mm -hmm. gets sent to prison, to this work camp. And I think we said this at the beginning of the show, but this was so intense. This entire (laughs) part was so intense. And I think that the amount of world building that happens in this episode is actually insane. Like how tense I felt and how immediately I felt like I understood how scary this work camp prison was. It really did make me think of the quote in Rogue One that Chirrut says to Cassie and he says, there's more than one sort of prison, Captain. I sense that you carry yours wherever you go. I remember texting you before the series premiered, Caitlin, and being like, we need to keep this quote in mind for the series and think about all the different prisons that Cassian is encountering throughout the show because I felt like it was going to be a lot. And I think it really is. And you can obviously put that quote in a lot of different metaphors and a lot of different situations that Cassian has been in in his life. But here's a literal prison (laughs) that he's in. I think that this is clearly going to be a scarring and life-changing experience for him. I felt like this entire part was a huge love letter to THX 1138, George Lucas's first film. And, uh, I, I think that this show really took on the concept of the prison industrial complex and how 
he is sent to a work camp. It's 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 a prison, but it's a work camp. And there's a mention of needing workers. And I just feel like it's like an insanely astute commentary on like the labor that's even happening now in the prison system in America. And I really feel like there's an exploited, exploitative nature to what is happening in this prison. Obviously, it's it's awful. And they're working against the clock and it like becomes sort of a game for them because that's the only way that they can find any sort of like way to figure out how to move forward in this. And by the end of the episode, you see Cassian just like assimilating and because he has to, right, in order to survive. The floor, I mean, oh my God, the floor. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to like talk so much, Caitlin. What did you think about this part of the prison? No, 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 you're you're good. Uh, yeah, the THX 1138 parallel is, is t- very obvious and very chilling. And I thought it might be worth it. If you haven't watched THX 1138, there was, there are two, two films basically there's the short film that George Lucas did uh, while he was in school uh, I can't remember how long it is it's uh, about 15 minutes and that came out yeah, in it's really short and then there is and it's formally called electronic labyrinth thx 11384eb and then there's the actual it became a theatrical film in 1971 THX 1138. And I thought it might be worth it to read from Wikipedia, like the little plot that they give, uh, because it, it, this, I mean, all of this episode is obviously a love letter to THX 1138, but I think we should be looking at the short film specifically. So the plot of, of THX 1138 4EB is it's an underground city and a dystopian future. The protagonist, whose name is THX 1138 4EB, is shown running through passageways and enclosed spaces. It is soon discovered that THX is escaping his community. The government uses computers and cameras to track down THX and attempt to stop him. However, they fail. He escapes by breaking open a door and runs off into the sunset. The government sends their condolences to YYO 7117, THX's mate, claiming that THX has destroyed himself. The USC program guide accompanying the film describes it as a nightmare impression of a world in which a man is trying to escape a computerized world, which constantly tracks his movements. And I think, you know, placing this film in its context in the 60s, this idea of surveillance was obviously very prevalent then. We've got a lot of new technology that's coming up in that time period too. And then the fact that a big part of this episode when it comes to the empire is surveillance too, right? I think we're all making those connections and what's going on. And the the contrast between what's happening in the prison with Mon Mothma's party specifically is just, it's supposed and the to way be. That the, yeah, yeah. The way that the show is edited too, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, wow. Cassian is eating from a tube that is ranked about how whether you get flavor or uh, what is it flavor and taste mm-hmm. and yeah so the higher the harder you work the more the better the food from the tube tastes and then you, the way it's edited is that it's cut then Mon Mothma and the elites are debating whether or not to have this like worm drink right yeah and it's really intense. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that all of those people at the party are talking about the new uh bills that are being passed basically the what is it, the the Port Act, the le- the Port legislation, I guess maybe is what it's called, and that that is predominantly about surveillance and we know that the empire is 
basically about to get uh, no restrictions on what they can do, what kind of documentation and data that they can access, because we know that's what DEDRA is doing uh, within the ISB. And the people in that party are talking about, you know, what kind of protection do we need? What's too much? Yada, yada, yada. But they're, what they're not talking about is the fact that all of these people uh, that are with Cassian on Narkina 5, they all had their prison sentences doubled just because, you know, and, and no one is kind of talking about this prison labor that is, you know, doing all of this work for the empire. And I'm sure we can speculate a lot about what they're building there. You know, the Death Star obviously is one, but the empire uses a lot of technology and has a lot of needs. So I'm sure, I'm sure they have so many prison camps, you know what I mean? But no one at that party is really talking about that piece of it and whether what they're doing there is right or, or just, um, not even like Mon Mothma at this juncture. Uh, have we seen her really address that yet? Yeah. I think it's interesting that one of the first conversations when the dust has sort of settled and all the prisoners are together kind of asking Cassian about what's going on in the outside world because you never get any info and Cassian doesn't share number one that he was involved in Aldani which caused everyone to get double their sentence which is Mm -hmm. absurd and then so he doesn't say anything and I think you had written this in the notes I can't remember if he said it already but like Cassian is like not in his mind in this episode similar to Marva I would say yeah and I think that him not saying anything there was interesting, but I think that'll probably change later. I think that what's absurd, though, is that they mentioned the PORD Act, and that that's the reason why they had their why they had their sentences doubled, and that there's this sense that like all the prisoners know, but like n- they're shocked that like potentially no one is talking about it outside of the prison, and I think that was an interesting move because it it sort of made prisoners who are working their ass off really and trying to like save themselves from honestly like killing themselves like we see in this episode and uh just like not even looking at those days that keep increasing that mean nothing from like descending into nihilism right Mm -hmm. what's crazy is that just the concept that like no one would be talking about this outside and that's not true we know that he just doesn't cassian doesn't want to mention that he was part of aldani but it is sort of a sad scene i think to for those people to realize that. Well, Cassian, Cassian was also running away from yeah, what happened. Yeah, he was vacationing. Yeah, he, he was, was a tourist. tourist. And so <laughs> was just a tourist. he was probably like ignoring a lot of what was going on too because he didn't want to acknowledge it. To, like, I don't think we've gotten a lot of his feelings about what happened on Aldani and if he feels any guilt about kind of the ramifications that have happened across the galaxy, responsibility. I think maybe we're moving to that and thinking about the prisoners right they're all in such isolation right there what did they say they the introduction into the prison is so intense you know i think number one the fact that they don't wear shoes there and all the uh prison guards have those like really intense boots and none of the prisoners have shoes it's such like the vulnerability of that is is a lot honestly and you know, the thought of being barefoot and being shocked that way and tortured that way is just fried is what they say. And, you know, if the lights are red, you have seven seconds to get up into your bunk, not just like into your like little cubby, but into your bunk, because even the floor on in your bunk uh, in your cubby will be 
will fry you. And how Cassian gets, uh, I think that first day he gets fried twice, I think is what they say. When he's being introduced or uh, intake, when he's being, the intake is happening into his, I guess, group within the prison, uh, they start rattling off like how many rooms, floors, people there are at each table, all of it. But when we see like them in the tunnels and stuff, you know, it's clear that they're not communicating. There's no kind of mingling of groups is the sense that I got. So the only way that the prisoners get new information is if someone in their group dies and that person is replaced. And I think they mentioned when they're asking Cassian about it uh, that it's been like a month since they've heard anything new. And so they rely in a weird way on these new people coming in, meaning that someone else has died or I guess someone has left the prison, but who knows if that actually happens, right? And Cassian has no information to give them and they all had their sentences doubled. And like, what do you mean you don't know? We, we all yeah. have our sentences doubled. And mm-hmm. I think all of that is kind of dawning on Cassian and it feels like he's just kind of shutting down in this episode after I think he says his name uh, when he first meets his table and I don't think he says anything else in the episode he has very little dialogue yeah it's kind of crazy I will say so we see Melshi in this episode which is so funny to me that so we finally we get a character from Rogue One okay who go is on Scarif with Cassian Mm -hmm. Melshi is the in the rebellion with Rogue One just to remind you he is also part of the contingent that does the master switch. He he's in Rogue One. So in the conversation of like, okay, so in this episode, Cassian basically says nothing, but eventually Melshi joins the rebellion. So like, couple questions: how <laughs> how uh, how do Cassian and Melshi like begin to know each other? To become do they become like prison buddies? Do they orchestrate a prison riot? I want a prison riot. I want a prison riot. Period. I don't necessarily think there were like hints of it in this episode, but I have some questions. Number one, I have a question about what was up with the sign language that was happening between different pods? Did you catch that? Or was that just people like doing their jobs robotically? I I thought it was showing characters who are deaf who were separated. And so like this person is even more isolated. Uh, He has no one to talk to. And the only person he can communicate with is in a different pod. Okay, that makes me really sad. See, I was thinking that that was like they were communicating each other because of a prison riot, but my brain was really only in prison riot because it felt like no one else was communicating with each other. Yeah, I think, well, and that's what's crazy too is remember in that scene too, um, they're coming down the line saying quiet down, quiet down, but literally no one is talking. Right. So it's, you know, it's like no matter what you do, which is similar to how Cassian was arrested, uh, Mm -hmm. you're still in the wrong. I think the prison riot could be coming because I had the feeling in the beginning of the episode that Cassian was really watching what was going on and like taking it in. And we know that Cassian is a quick learner because of everything that happened on Aldani. So I think I think he can make a plan to escape. And I, you know, I think there's the possibility that the sign language could come back into that of communicating the plan to other pods. I don't think that's. What was, what was happening in this there. scene. But I think it could happen in the future. I think it's going to come back around. Yeah. It just, it felt, um, they had like four separate shots of it. So it felt distinct. Yeah. So I guess we'll just like put that in a pocket for later. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just felt like this whole thing was so crazy. Also, we've talked a little bit about this, but we haven't mentioned that Andy Circus is in this. Oh my what God. What the heck? I, <laughs> when I first saw him, I was like, 
what? <laughs> I was like, the is confusion. This really, who I think it is? I was like, oh, wait, I'm confused. <laughs> it's Snoke. <laughs> it's, it's, I, it's weird. I think he did a good job, but it's weird. I'm not going to lie. It's a little weird for me uh, to see him in this role. But I kind of yeah. disagree. I think it's cool to see him not in a mocap suit. I mean, I think it's cool to see him not in a mocap suit, but it's weird thinking about him as a completely different character already yeah. in the Star Wars universe. One, they did a lot of featurettes on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so true. Yeah. I it was I was shocked. I was really surprised. Yeah. Um, I also need to mention that his character isn't like an officer, right? Like I think that it's important to note that Andy Serkis's character is also a prisoner. And I think this is sort of like this collective mindset of like, they're all trying to save their ass, right? Yeah. Like they're all in it. Like he's harsh, of course, but he's harsh because he doesn't want to get shocked by the higher ups. Like now he's in a position of power within the prison. And I think that his pain might potentially even be be worse than the people that are on the floor working at those tables if he does something wrong. So of course he's harsh. But then you think about how oppressive and terrible the system is entirely, right? There's no upside to any of this. I just think it's worth noting that Andy Serkis is also a prisoner and not necessarily like of the empire, right? It's interesting. Yeah, but I think that's what happens in those kind of yeah, situations totally. too is that they'll It's realistic. Yeah, you give the prisoner power and then if they get punished, they're going to be right. Like he becomes the warden yeah. of that room even though he's a prisoner and you give them this false sense of authority and security when ultimately he really doesn't have any. And he says a line to Cassian about, uh, you know, he only has so many days left. He's just getting out. Don't, you know, F it up for him. And if you are sick or injured, come see me. If you have another problem with another prisoner, come see me. But I think what that means is he'll just tell them to get rid of Cassian to not be a problem anymore. Like if Cassian got injured, Mm -hmm. I think he would be killed. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. One negative I will say about this whole set piece is I wish there were more aliens. I really do. Yeah. I I don't really tolerate a ton of <laughs> and or criticism, I guess, or like bad faith criticism about how it like, quote unquote, doesn't feel like Star Wars. I think it feels like Star Wars in a big way. But in this particular scene and set piece, I was like, where are the aliens? And I say that actually because in Rogue One, when Jin was in prison and they broke her out, she her roommate was an alien. And I was sort of like, all right, let's just add add like a couple in here. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of aliens in the show, but I think that in a different show, there would be a bunch in this prison, I guess. That's kind of surprising because I feel like they've made a point of saying that it's mostly like humans that are on the Empire. But yeah. I also wouldn't be surprised if the Empire was segregating uh, I know. by and species. I, yes. And I was just about to say that because I think that it might be a powerful move if they have a line about that. Because it mm-hmm. feels like – well, Cassian is a commodity, right? He's sent here to work yeah. and because he's like an able-bodied man. And so then what else does that say? Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like they are segregating, but I want them to point it out mm-hmm. because it's obvious. Yeah, I do too. Same. All right. Uh, should we move to Coruscant? Yes. If I could harness Clea's energy for my own life, <laughs> I feel like I would be unstoppable. Uh, <laughs> How so? <laughs> I, every episode now, she's doing stuff, and I'm like, you keep doing stuff, girl. <laughs> <laughs> she has she has Luthen by the throat. Like, she, honestly. She's like, like, her slipping. heel is on his neck. Shut yeah. it down. 
I'm right. like, okay, all right, you're right. I'll shut it down. And she's not even talking yeah. to me. When when she was like, I'm shutting down Ferrix, I was like, no, you can't do that. But then like a scene later, it's proven that she's so right. And I'm like, should have listened to Clea. Damn, I was proven wrong. <laughs> she she knows. And the okay, so remember we we've had a theory that Clea could be Cassian's sister, right? I don't know if we've talked about that on the show. How, I don't I like can't remember. Um, I mean, that's the theory. Anyway, the we've had a theory. Entire theory is like it could be Cassian's sister. The thing is, though, is at this point, she, I feel like she's so smart that if that were true, she would already know. Yeah, that's actually kind of true. And she's like advocating for Vel to kill Cassian. Yeah, you know, unless right. she feels abandoned by Cassian and doesn't care. I mean. I don't want to get too in the weeds in this because this this feels kind of like the Val Luthan theory of like who knows <laughs> there could be a connection just like there. we can we can put it out there we don't have to spend that much time on it yeah you know what I mean yeah <laughs> I'd always wondered if like Clea had gone or if Cassian's sister like we found out at the end that she was like actually working with the Empire and that's how they meet again but I think there's a lot of possibilities of who she could be and Clea was an interesting one but I'm not sure if I. I, I think I'm putting this one in the speculation graveyard right now. Okay. And you're ready to you're ready to revive when, when needed. it comes to it. I'm, yeah, when needed. Yeah. But it can stay dead for a little bit. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I just think that what's interesting, I think, is her age is probably correct. And her the fact that her name starts with a K, just like Cassas did. Mm-hmm. There's something there. But it's not... That isn't the sister's name either. Like, Clea was not the sister's name in the credits of those first couple of episodes of Andor. So... Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. Anyway, it doesn't mean anything. But it it means something if I'm saying that the K means something, right? Because the C... Like, Cassian changed his name to C-A-S, right? Like, it doesn't... that. This is a lot. Like, again, we're in the weeds. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> we need to leave the speculation graveyard. Close the gate. <laughs> Yeah, the game. <laughs> we are leaving the graveyard. Okay. So, also one other thing is in Luthen's, uh, in the sh- in his antiquity shop, which I wish we got a name for that, and maybe we have got a name and I've forgotten it. But uh, there is a Naboo headdress, the metal headdress that Padme wears on the peasant headdress, the peasant headdress that was for sale at Galaxy's Edge. Maybe it still is. I don't know. Anyway, that's in Luthen's shop. So. Someone actually pointed out on your tweet because he tweeted about this that the Naboo gun gun shield is also behind there, oh, which I did not notice. Very cool. I know. I didn't either. I feel like there's there's just every time uh, we're in the shop, I just you, you, every episode it's something new. Yeah, you got to pause it and look. Yeah, I didn't see it when I watched it last night. So yeah. Ah, very cool. Anyway, I think that Luthen is becoming increasingly, I said this in the beginning of the show, I'm going to say it again, an interesting character because I thought I knew who he was and I don't think I do. Okay, so we finally got Saw in this episode. When we pulled up and saw two tubes, I was like, we're here, Forrest Whitaker, Saw Guerrera, we're doing this. And I couldn't wait for the conversation. And man, this conversation was absolutely loaded. I don't think we can go through every single quote, but I feel like we could go through every single quote. You know what I mean? I think that a couple things were revealed. I think it's interesting that either, like both of them thinks that the other one did Aldani and there's no admittance of it. And what's interesting about that to me is that Luthen goes there to ask for Saw support and to create a network, but he won't admit to Aldani, to Saw. So 
there's like an ask for a network, but then also a lack of honesty, I guess, with Saw as well, which I think is like that's honest. That honesty like wasn't warranted. And I don't think that Luthen should have told him that. But I think if the, if the conversation's purpose was bringing Saw in or like working more friendly with Saw, um, maybe he could have admitted, admitted that or something like that. I don't know. What do you think about that? I loved their whole conversation in the beginning when I think Saw knows that it's Luthen and uh, yeah. by the end of that conversation. But the fact that Luthen won't admit to it, like you said, even though he is kind of asking this big favor of Saw and, you know, talking about how, you know, it must be hard fighting with people who agree with you all the time or don't agree with you. I forget what he says. But basically, like how Saw is operating on its own with his own moral code, won't connect with anyone and is kind of making things difficult. But then, you know, Saw's got to give a little to get a little. You know what I mean? And he's not at all here. And it, I think the most interesting thing I pulled from this conversation is the fact that when Saw asked Luthen who he was and all Luthen responded back was, I'm a coward. Uh, I'm the one who says we die with nothing if we don't put aside our petty differences, which, you know, is obviously a dig at Saw. And because Saw had listed all these different sects, I assume, of different uh, people who are against the uh, the empire that he won't work with. What Luthen is really doing, too, is he's deflecting any personal information. And this is something we've been asking for a couple episodes now of, okay, like, how did Luthen get involved in all of this in the first place? Who is he to have such pool and control and uh, ability to even begin to set up a network, to connect with Mon Mothma, to have kind of leverage over her in a lot of ways, to the point that Mon Mothma trusts him to be dealing with her large sums of money and everything like that. So who who is Luthen <laughs> and where does he come from? And the fact that he is telling Saw nothing is, I think, is uh, a little suspicious, just I think in, in the larger story. And I think this kind of hammers home why Luthen is so paranoid about the fact that Cassian is still out there and knows who he is. Like what Clea said last week of, we can't have Cassian walking around with Luthen in his head. I loved that line. Mm -hmm. I think that Saw asking Petty, I'm the one with clarity of purpose is such a good quote that it's so Saw Gerrera. This character is written so well, I feel like, especially like in this Rogue One area. Five years away from Rogue One with Saw Gerrera here. So he hasn't I didn't notice, but I feel like he looks like a different man in a lot of ways. Um, and also at this time period, like Jin has left. Like there's no, well, Saw dumped Jin. Um, there's no Jin in this picture of living with Saw Gerrera. And it makes me wonder, like, does Luthen, would Luthen recognize Jin? I'm surprised. I don't know. I think it, it's a lot of, a lot of questions in my head, but I also earlier speculated that I thought that Mon Mothma wanted to bring in Saw potentially, but it's clear that Luthen actually has a connection with Saw clearly. And it really, yeah, like who is Luthen? Who is Luthen Rail? How did he get involved? You were asking these questions too. Like how did he come to power? How is he really the, the access to use Dedra's words of all of these different sects of rebellion? And I just think I find his self-awareness really interesting and I'm really like thrown off by it, honestly, um, because I 
I think I just, I think that you using the word paranoia about him wanting to, uh, about him being nervous about Cassian knowing who he was is exactly like perhaps Luthen's downfall. And I wonder if it'll continue to drive Luthen almost crazy. Mm. One thing I wanted to note was that I thought a good like story connection was that Saw is still pretty uh, prejudiced against separatist. Um, when he, I forget that I didn't write down the guy's name that Luthen wanted Saw to meet with who has a plan. Anto for some- Krieger. Krieger. Anto Krieger. Okay. Anto Krieger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you write that down? <laughs> no, I was looking him up to see if he was someone else already, but I don't think he is. There was someone else in uh, the Wolfstein fandom. Is that right? All right. That has a similar know. name that kept coming up. It was some other fandom's Wikipedia uh, equivalent. And anyway, yeah, that's who. You were looking to see if they had a past. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> I They don't. That person does not. Um, and I thought that what we learned about that person was that they were previously a separatist, so that Saw was not going to work with them. So that creates an opposition because if they're all going for the same goal, like what Luthen says, you know, he says, aren't you tired of fighting with people who agree with you? Loved that line. Perfect. Because all Luthen wants to do is, again, create a network of people who are like-minded and working together for this one goal to defeat the empire. Yeah. But Saw continues to be correct about a lot of things, but a thorn in the side of people who want to go in a different way, right? He is... Um, and Luthen calls him out for being like a comfortable anarchist, I think is the term he uses. And I thought that was another interesting situation in this conversation. Just like there was a lot of daggers thrown on each side, I guess, about who these people are and their weaknesses, I guess. Yeah. And Sagarero is definitely someone who is much more out uh, with what he's doing. And uh, totally. That's something Luthen is trying to do that we that was the yeah, point but of then Eldani. he calls him out that he's hiding, right? Yeah, he's yeah. hiding. In well, this he's cold in hiding, cave. but he is planning like Saw is the one who is planning big kind of attacks, and we even see him doing things in a bad batch to that effect. Uh, but Aldani is the first thing that Luthen has kind of orchestrated to be loud and he wants he wants them all to be loud together in order for the empire to come down hard right oppression breeds rebellion but saw has such strict lines around who he's willing to work with right like he's equating separatists to like human cultists and luna's like yeah (laughs) we can't do that right we can't go that far um saw also mentions the gorman front which isn't this the same the gormans are the ones that mon mothma has kind of been referencing throughout Mm -hmm. the series so far ends in massacre Mm -hmm. yeah and like cutting off their trade routes and stuff and like leading to starvation so the uh, saw referencing it as the gorman front uh i don't know something to keep in mind uh see if it comes up again later on in the series which i think it might uh you had mentioned Jin, and if luthan knows Jin, and i think this could come up in the fact that the rebellion knows to go and get Jin, and they're not working with saw at that point so perhaps uh luthan is the one who sends cassian to go get Jin because he's actually met her and knows who she is and knows that she could be uh like used in order to get to saw again interesting i hope that comes up yeah i think it will 
Probably not until next season, though. <laughs> yeah, not until next season, for sure. There's a lot that we have to deal with before we get to that part. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's go to the party real fast uh, with Mon Mothma. I think we've already kind of talked about it a little bit with Cassian, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Mon Mothma and Perrin and, uh, and Tay and Lita and kind of everything going on with the, the family side of things. Um, I thought this was interesting. There's kind of this... Right. We all hate Perrin. I still hate Perrin. Just want to be clear. But there's kind of this like more relaxed moment at the beginning of the episode with them where they're getting the drink, the squigs drink. I think that's the worm is the squig. And Perrin is like very casual. Like they're not arguing. There's no like defensive tone in their conversation about like, what are we toasting to? And she says a quick night and he's like, sounds good. And they like cheers. And it's I don't know. It's a very it's the first time we've really had a moment like that from them. Uh, so it stood out to me. And the fact that we got kind of confirmation about um, them being married at 15, that they came to Coruscant when Mon became a senator, and even some comments that Perrin made with Tay, uh, or when she didn't want the squigs drink, and he was like, you used to like it. And she was like, no, I was just good at pretending. And he was like, were you? And I don't know, it kind of made me wonder if, when they first got married, like Perrin wanted to make it work or was they were actually yeah. in love at some point or came to be in love at some point. And then uh, they ended up on different sides of this. I think that's exactly what You happened. know, and I don't know. They were kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know. Like I said, that moment just stood out because it's kind of the first time we've ever had this that kind of tone in their conversation is usually always very tense and heated and like they're kind of throwing barbs at each other. But this was like this first private moment with them, which didn't feel tense. Um, So I thought it was worth noting. I also think the squigs came up so much. (laughs) that I was like, are we going to, is something going to happen with the squigs later? (laughs) I know. I felt the same way. Right. I mean, I know they were weird, so I understand wanting to write them in the script because they're visually weird but yeah yeah I totally agree also back to the conversation with like this weird on the same level moment between Mon and Perrin last episode I said did you get a vibe between Mon and and Tay and you said no Mm -hmm. all right so in this episode did you get a vibe between Mon and Mon and Tay and the fact that Leda probably is noticing I I still don't have a vibe between them but I do think that Leda feels like there is um yeah so yeah, I when I was watching this episode, I was like, I it feels like Leda could easily think that something is going on between the two of them. I feel like Tay and Mon have some sort of history and maybe they weren't um allowed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I think that's totally possible. Um, but I do think that Leda kind of thinks that something is going yeah. on with them. And I she's always around yeah. and it makes me think that there is there's definitely going and her limited lines seem to always be about noticing what Mon is up to. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that is probably going to come up in a way. Maybe she accuses Mon of cheating or something and it yeah. causes a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Perrin also had a comment to Tay out, uh, in the early part of their of the episode about you know, how, oh, well, Mon is doing politics tonight, not charity, because we know that Tay Colma set up a charity, basically, in Mon Mothma's name in order to move her money around. So, and I found myself wondering, like, does maybe Perrin has a bigger angle here, 
or actually knows what's going on. And he's just playing his part, too, without even telling Mon Mothma, uh, obviously. Yeah, because she tells Tay that he can't be trusted. So, yeah. And and even, you know, thinking about the age of marriage and everything like that, it, Lita is around that age, too. So I, know. I almost wondered if that would become a thing later, too, if they would try to get her married, which it doesn't feel like Mon Mothma would do that, probably because she knows how her and parents' relationship turned out. But I also don't know. Like, she's the one that's kind of... Uh, She's using the Chandrillan traditions, like, to get presents for Perrin in order to go see Luthen, holding these parties and stuff. And I don't know. I don't know how much she really believes in the traditions of Chandrilla anymore, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah, I I think that it's on her mind, and she probably doesn't want it. Maybe Perrin is telling her she doesn't have to, but Mon is, like, traditional, so I don't know. Or, like, representative of Chandrilla, so then she resents her for it or something like that yeah Yeah. I think that'll come up for sure I also don't think it has been said but it's curious that Leda's name is Leda which looks like Leia which then in the future Mm. Mon sort of takes Leia under her wing as her like de facto daughter and it's sort of like what happened to Leda (laughs) I right Leda Leda's a teenager but I want her to be around <laughs> yeah I mean I I, I have I have hope I mean late as a teenager so I have hope that she's like not such a grouch all the time right like yeah or she's just going through the hormones of being a teenager yeah I want to see her realize all the good things that Mon Mothma is doing you know mm-hmm. and I don't know have like a better realization about that yeah Okay, well, I think we have kind of gone through the whole episode. I feel like we did it in kind of a weird order. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, the episode itself was so spliced yeah, in it, between. Like, it really was. It, while the other ones felt more segmented, this one was like, whoa, there's a lot coming at me at this point. Mm-hmm. So we had to segment it ourselves, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we took matters into our own hands. Yeah, yeah. We usually do separate these episodes by kind of – like camp, you know, like Ferrix, Cassian, Mon Mothma, and Luthen. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I feel like we've gone through a lot this episode. Very much looking forward to the next episode and what is coming next for Cassian on Narkina and, of course, all of our other major players. And there are a lot of major players. So <laughs> watch this space. <laughs> but I think we are going to head into our interview with Nicholas Bratel. And we're so excited. Uh, the music, I think it's something that everyone has been talking about with Andor. So to have this opportunity to uh, talk to him is really exciting. So I hope you guys enjoy our roundtable interview with Nicholas Bratel. So our question is, uh, we are loving how each title sequence has a slightly different piece of music. Mm -hmm. almost like a musical version of the opening crawl in the films. Where did that idea come from? And what was the process for composing a different musical introduction for each episode? That is a great question. Uh, It was, it was interesting. It wasn't, it wasn't something that we knew we were going to do in the very beginning. Um, I worked with Tony for, you know, basically two years on, on, on all the music for Andor for season one. So it was something that, I think about a year and a half ago uh, when I was presenting him some of the early possibilities for, for a theme uh, for, uh, for Cassian, but also really for Andor for the whole sort of show itself. Um, When I was showing him all the, you know, this one piece, 
I was showing him all the stems and all the different elements of it. And I was like, you know, I, I like the big version, but I was like, you know, when you just hear the cellos, it's really beautiful. And also, you know, if you just hear like the synthesizers, it's kind of cool. And so we kind of looked at each other, we're like, I mean, maybe we do a few of these. <laughs> and then it actually very quickly um, uh, became something where we realized that there was a concept there of evolving it over the course of the whole season so that we could tailor each main title to what was about to happen and sometimes sort of relate to both what has just happened and where we're about to go in the next episode. So, so it became this kind of like a, you know, calibration almost for each episode. And, uh, and the process of doing it was, um, it was a lot of work. <laughs> it was every single, every, every episode, um, you know, we scored these in, and I can talk a lot about all this for sure, but we scored them in London, recorded with orchestra. I did all the synthesizer work. Um, and basically every, every single episode that I was scoring, I would say to myself, you know, what is the main title I'm going to do for this? And I would, you know, Tony lives 11 blocks from me. So he was here all the time sitting on this couch actually. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would say, I think this feels, this feels good. And, we worked so closely together on each of these and tailored each one to sort of what we were feeling at the at the time. Hi there. Uh, one of the things I love most about your work is it really feels like your music takes us into the minds of the characters opposed, as opposed to just sitting atop them. I think this is super present, especially in the past to present suite and in our most recent episode that we saw, episode eight, where we have yeah. these beautiful string orchestrations, but this very kind of tilted synthesizer. Uh, when you're writing music for uh, Cassian or a particular world, what do you feel like you need to understand about the character or the situation in order to ap approach writing the music for it? It's a great question. It, I think it gets to kind of this, the heart of the whole process in a way, you know, because every, I think every project, no matter what it is, you know, every show, every, every film deserves its own sonic landscape, its own sort of DNA. And the complicating factor on a, on something as epic as Andor is that every episode in a way also demands its own approach. So, um, you know, you were talking about the, the most recent episode that has its own whole uh, sonic palette in a way, but to calibrate that, to sort of get into what it is, especially for Cassian, that was something that it really evolved for me over time. Um, I start every project at, at zero, you know, like I try to be as blank a slate as possible. And through conversations with Tony, through reading some, I read these very top secret early scripts, you know, um, and then starting to see imagery, eventually starting to see footage, um, and then and then edited episodes. Um, I feel I'm learning along the way as that's happening. So it's not like there's sort of one thing where I sort of realize, oh, I think this is it. It's actually something about, I experiment with a lot of different ideas. And I think over time, you sort of discover that certain things resonate with the picture certain things when you're you know especially like you know we i did a lot of on-camera music actually before they had shot everything I and mean, that's a whole that was a whole endeavor unto itself but um you know once i started like working on episode one because we we did it in order in that way and uh once i started working on episode one there were certain things that just it felt like cassian like certain motifs certain progressions and the thing i knew was that as he evolved, as he learned about himself, as he learned about his universe and the struggle that's going on, he that that 
certainly would change and you know and it changes through episode eight certainly changes all the way going you know there's a lot more obviously to come um but i think it's about it's sort of an abstract answer but it's kind of about feeling it's about feelings it's about feeling that there for cassian in particular i think there's this questioning that he's doing that he doesn't even know he's doing i think sometimes you know he doesn't know he wants to know about his past he wants to know about his present but at the same time i think there are certain things he may never know and i think the music itself is trying to capture that in a sense the main title in a way you know you can imagine the main title as being sort of a big immediate concept i actually wrote the main title so it starts almost at nothing it starts like kind of just with this pulsing this kind of lurking feeling and as it grows over 35.2 seconds you know it goes it, it it has this final crescendo culmination and then it goes away as well so there's this kind of like it's sort of discovering itself and then it vanishes and i think maybe there's a metaphor there with 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 Cassian too that he's he doesn't know and then he and then we have glimpses of learning and discovering and realizing and then maybe something else happens <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us nicholas sure. um you just mentioned that you start each project with a with a blank canvas and then you build from there so what will you take with you from season one as you start to develop and you continue the themes, obviously we know where we're going with the characters, but obviously we don't know how they get there. Right. So what have you learned and what will you take with you as you begin to approach the journey in season two? Another great question. These That's a big question too, that I don't really, I don't even know the answers to that. I think I would say, I think, you know, um, the the definite starting point I would have, and again, I haven't, you know, I'm I'm talking to Tony right now. We're already planning certain things up, but I haven't actually, you know, begun the the official scoring of season two yet. Um, but you know, my my sense would be there are very there as we, you know, like I was saying, as I'm, you know, as I score a project, you learn as you go, you discover things, which I think is fascinating too. I feel that you know, it's not a it's not a science. This is very much something that every episode sort of teaches you things and you know you might try a theme out in one episode and it really feels right and then you might try the same theme out in another episode and it doesn't work at all you know it just it, the, the 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 film just rejects it you know so i have certain themes that i think feel like they're related to the dynamics of the struggle of characters there's there are many themes certainly you know there's there's themes, you know, just big picture. I mean, some of them, there's obviously a sort of Andor scope uh, theme. There's motifs related to Cassian. There's um, there's motifs certainly around Mon Mothma and the rebellion. Um, there's uh, every episode has its has certain unique signatures too that are almost like uh, latent within those episodes. And I'm imagining that there will be a lot of individuation as we go to so there's probably many things that i haven't yet thought of that that we will that we will come to um but i think many of the of the large scale themes are certainly things that i imagine um carrying over luthan luthan's theme you know which obviously intersects with with many things um uh the isb uh theme that i that i wrote though so those are those are some of the things that i would imagine but again i actually have not read any scripts so i can't say for sure just about anything. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Hey, Nicholas. My name is Caitlin from Sky Talker. So nice to talk to you today. Sure. Um, you mentioned this previously a question ago, but I wanted to learn some more about the music that was played 
on set during filming. This seems so cool and special that you got to do this. Without spoiling anything, can you discuss how that decision came about? Sure. Um, you you know, you've seen some of it so far. There's definitely more to come. Um, uh, but it was be- just for purely almost practical considerations. That was the stuff that Tony and I began with first because it had to be done. And, and it was really important uh, to both of us that it be really done on set. So, you know, we I did a lot of demoing and pre-records, but there people actually recorded stuff on set. You know, some of those things, for example, if I'm thinking uh, like episode three, the alarm signaling on Ferrex, you know, that was a whole kind of percussion suite that I wrote and each rhythm had its own meaning that Tony and I would talk about. So there's a, there's a rhythm at the very top of it where um, that sort of signals like a, a message is coming. And then there's a rhythm for the commencement of the alarm. And then there's other rhythms that sort of join. So that was that was one example of that, that uh, we worked on a lot. And, you know, it's so complicated too, because you come up with these things and then they're done on set. And then you see how that worked. And then in post, you sort of then try to figure out, okay, well, really big questions like, you know, does the score have to be in the same tempo as the signaling? Or if it's in the same tempo, does it, work or not. And the interesting thing is that there's no right answer for these. Like, so for example, with the signaling, it was important that the score didn't acknowledge it because when you started acknowledging it, it started feeling like the signaling was score and it's not, you're seeing it, you know? So that was like, okay, don't, don't do that. But for example, the time grappler, um, that was another example of on camera, you know, we had to have him, you know, (laughs) swinging that mallet. And um, that was something where we actually wrote this very elaborate series of individual musical idents for different times of day, for different instructions that they were giving the people of Ferrex, you know, at different moments of the day. And so that was something where at times the score actually is in the same key as the time graph, because sometimes it felt weird if it wasn't, you know, so, so those were the types of things, both in pre current production, you know, post-production, we had to figure those out. Um, Another example is the Aldani Eye Festival the chanting and all of that music, you know, uh, I wrote that music, Tony wrote those wonderful lyrics, <laughs> shall we say, you know, uh, and, um, you know, th- those were all different things, each of which that was, that was very complex too, because the score in those sequences was, was so large scale. And, and, and that was one where it, it did have to sort of connect in certain ways. Um, so those were, those were some examples of the process and the, and the challenges and, and, uh, and there's definitely more to come. So that's <laughs> that's what I would say about that. Hi, Nicholas. Sorry for the uh, wonky connection here. Um, my question, my question for you is: Well, congratulations on such a, a dignified and and distinctive score. It's fantastic. And you. so, my question is: um, What was the sort of musical recipe that you concocted for the score? And when did you know when you had nailed it? Wow, that's 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 a tough one. I think uh, I don't know if you ever know if you nail something. You know, I think you're always just putting in the time and the effort, and you're sort of uh, you're going on your on your instinct that if it's working, if it's resonating for for you, you know, for me, my hope is that then it resonates for other people. You know, and if it's working for me and Tony, then I get more confidence that it's working. You know, so it's it's a lot of um, you know, it's a lot of time and it's a lot of uh, effort really and the and and the the formula you know if there it was really from the very start um tony and kathy kennedy were so supportive and so um you know really 
clear about wanting a unique soundscape for Andor and about really, you know, hoping that it could have kind of its own sound palette and and um, and 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 unique new themes and textures. And so that really gave me the sense of um, not just support, but freedom to explore things. And I had this instinct very early on that obviously I love working with orchestras and I, you know, it's one of the joys, the greatest joys of, of being a composer, I think is getting to write for orchestra. But at the same time, there was something with Andor that immediately to me, I was drawn to these sort of um, older analog synthesizers um, that, you know, and I don't often get to write with a, with a sound palette like that, but there was something about, you know, perhaps it was the idea that we're, you know, I, I grew up loving Star Wars. I mean, I think Return of the Jedi, I think was the first, my, my parents, so I think it was the first movie I, they took me to in a movie theater when I was like three, you know? So I, I, I love Star Wars and, and the, the idea that this comes before that, you know, this is early, this kind of earlier than that trilogy this is before rogue one you know there was something almost like retro that i was thinking like oh we could what would sound like we're before this you know and there was something about to me at least there was something about this this sort of retro analog synthesis that felt like we were going to the before stages of something that could then grow into hopefully where what we all know eventually you know the, the sort of maj majesty that, that that star wars is you know so um so that was maybe an early instinct i had and and certainly not everything is synthesizer you know there's there's a, we recorded with a huge string orchestra and brass and percussion and uh, amazing musicians uh and uh so there's there's all of that but i think that was those were some early instincts that i had and i think the the actual um you know, uh, orchestration itself really varies uh, episode to episode. That was my other sort of point to myself, I think, was that every episode, we're in different planets, we're in different places, we're in different parts of the story. So it felt like it really had to have, each episode had to have its own unique thought process, which certainly added to the work that Tony and I gave ourselves. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Sure. Hi, Nicholas. Brandon from Talking Bay 94. Hey. Um, I would love to dive in. This is the most tense show I've ever watched, I feel like, every week. Um, and the music is a huge part of that. And the the pulses and the the backing behind it is just a huge part of how this show functions. I'd love to dive in to how you've constructed that and how you play that against what's happening on screen. Sure. Um, it there are, there are varying degrees of tension in different episodes. And some of that is really... Tony and I, you know, us talking about what's happening and and what is, you know, what's the scope of the current endeavor. So there are certain episodes where um, where the tension is really high. And I'm I don't want to give anything away with where things go, but there are I would say there are certain things that I do, perhaps, you know, to add to the tension. One thing that I was doing a lot was um there are certain, you know, there are certain orchestral concepts and certain musical ideas you can do to 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 increase tension one thing that i added was i felt it was really important that things had to feel like they weren't from earth you know what i mean like i really wanted it to feel like this is not our galaxy you know and so there's a um you'll hear it in a lot of places there's a sort of detuning that i do with things quite often in 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 the show both with real instruments and also with synthesizers um to give a sense of it, I mean, to me, it just starts, it, it doesn't just feel, 
in a faraway galaxy. To me, it also feels like something's not quite right, <laughs> you know. And when you do that, coupled with, for example, in you know, um, rising rising elements, or when you do that with lurking, pulsing low. I mean, there there's there's a sort of uh, stew that you concoct, you know, and, um, and every single one of those, I mean, I would, I, I would really stress like every single moment in the show is a unique musical piece. There's no, we, we didn't like, like, I mean, maybe this is our own, you know, <laughs> like, uh, uh, you know, masochism or something like that, but like, like we really, every, we wrote every single scene has something unique, you know, and that's Tony is so passionate about this. Um, we, you know, I was starting to say it before, but we really, we underestimated how much work this was going to be. And we had already thought it was going to be a lot of work. So that was for sure. But we vastly underestimated how much work this was going to be. We worked constantly on this, like constantly. And so the question about the tension, every single moment where that's happening, it's, you can picture Tony and me right here being like, all right, well, what are we, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, and then being like, it's, oh, I don't think it's enough. You know, what are, you know, and there's also certain things too. For example, I think there's often as things are, are, um, uh, you know, increasing in scope, for example, I think sometimes the outs of certain scenes rise even to, or crescendo or culminate, you know, so there's a sort of like moment to moment, uh, escalation that you might feel in certain episodes. But I think there's also like a, inside certain of these scenes, there's, a gradually increasing something's wrong feeling probably. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Nicholas. It's Gustavo with Trial of the Force. Thank you so much hey. for spending some time with us. Uh, my question has to do with like how we create the soundscapes for Andor and it's rooted with how we experience Star Wars as you know, for the past 40 years, we've grown so accustomed to what yeah. the sounds of Star Wars uh, needs to be based on those original scores from the nine trilogy films. And now in this, you know, in this new post Skywalker era with all these composers coming in, there's been a sort of reverence to what Star Wars needs to sound like. And now with Ludwig in Mandalorian, we've gone in to see some departures of what that can be, but still in a way grounded into, mm -hmm. you know, that Williams soundscape, so to speak. With Andor, though, it feels like we've broken the wheel and we've kind of, you know, done something completely different that it's not, you know, rooted in that sense in terms of like having orchestration and synthesizers and a lot of different percussive elements that we mm -hmm. haven't experienced before. So yeah. my question is like, how have we reinterpreted what Star Wars sounds like and how do you decide when to use orchestration versus like synth and electronic elements for like those moments like in the Niamos Marlana club mix, which is now the best track in the whole of the Star Wars <laughs> canon, I think. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, um, the the answer is really moment to moment. I mean, you know, like I was saying, it's it's a it was a constant conversation. Um, I think that in general, towards the beginning of season one, um, I was I wasn't trying to avoid orchestra, but I think there's something dark and very real that Tony was going for. Um, there's a sense that you know it's it's like we are right with Cassian. We're, you know, we we we're in his POV. We don't know what's happening. And yet um we, you know, you see before the episode, you see the Star Wars logo, and yet immediately you're sort of, where are we? And I think that early on I was trying to almost uh, you know, really embrace that feeling of worse, you know, 
you maybe this is Star Wars, but maybe this is Star Wars you haven't seen before. This is a part of the galaxy we haven't been to in a sense, you know, feeling wise for sure. And so, um, you know, I'm the, I I adore the John Williams scores. I mean, like they're, you know, John Williams is such is beyond a legend to me, you know. Uh, but I so I but I think in some ways it was um it was a very conscious thing of saying, you know what, we're going for something different here. And when orchestra would come in, I think it felt like it was right. You know, it felt like there are certain elements, I think, especially in the first few episodes, the first time you really have probably a large scale orchestra enter the picture is the end of episode three, where it's the wraparound bringing everything sort of together in the past present suite. Um, but also even there, you're noticing there's a lot of close mic'd individual instruments. It's sort of even mic'd. I even recorded some of the music differently. So there's, I think I was trying to go for a very like intimate feel in some of these things. You know, there's a there's a there's a dark synthesizer edge to things. There is a sort of um, hard percussive edge to things. But there's also I think like a very um, you know emotional close mic'd solo instrument feel at times too. That's sort of some of the first few episodes, even down to hearing the leaves and canary, you know, that's part of the score. Um, you know, hearing all those different percussive sort of forest elements, you know, sort of like a close feeling, I guess is what I would say. And as the scope of the series increases and as we learn more and as the drama increases, to me, that's where orchestra then should enter into the picture even more, you know, there's nothing grander than for scope than than a beautiful symphony orchestra and yet like you were saying on niamos there's always room for more synthesizer i think so there's definitely you know that's not going away and that's certainly part of i just feel that's a part of that became a part of that this certainly season one and um and to your to your point about mentioning the amos track you know the thing that we thought about when when i initially wrote that piece for actually the morlana club in episode one and i had this idea that i pitched to tony and, and he was totally in for it where i was like you know what if the diegetic music in some of these places is this same piece of music that's just sort of of this very well-known hit in the galaxy like there's just this piece that you know you hear the morlana club version when you're in coruscant you know you hear it's like a diplomatic kind of lounge version you know and then when you're on Niamos you're well that's where that's like where it is that's the galaxy mix of Niamos you know you're there you know so so th that was kind of the idea and uh and it just you know I remember saying to him I was like when we enter Niamos I think we have to hear this track you know thank you thank you so much thank, thank you, you. Great. All right. That was our interview, our roundtable interview with Nicholas Bertel. We got to do it with some of our favorite Star Wars podcasts. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. We certainly did. And I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode all about Andor Episode 8, Narkina 5. If you want to talk more about Star Wars, Andor, Tales of the Jedi literally anything Star Wars. You can find us on Twitter, on the podcast handle, which is at SkytalkersPod, or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, our Instagram, our Facebook, and our TikTok, all great places to find us. And if you have a couple of seconds and would like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would really love it if you took a couple of seconds to go and do that. It helps other people find our show and join in the conversation. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our reward tiers there. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons. 
Dylan, Aaron, Hunter, Allison, Timothy, Ashley, Josh, Brandon, Miss Art, Rebuild, Eunice, Debo, Marty, Jacqueline, John, Ian, Lakshana, Thomas, and Daniel. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Thank you.